Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Amy Mount, and I'm a dual degree master's candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. I'm in the studio today with Matt Daggett. Matt is Greenpeace International's global campaign leader for forests. In this role, Matt is the curator of a basket of global campaign projects designed to achieve zero deforestation globally. Prior to this role, Matt was Greenpeace USA's strategy director, which involved, among other tasks, designing GPUSA's strategic direction and program evaluation. Before joining Greenpeace, Matt was an associate partner at Dolberg Global Development Advisors, a consulting firm focused on nonprofit strategic planning and operations. Matt, thank you for joining us today. Glad to be here. So to begin with, can you tell me a bit about what made you want to work for Greenpeace after leaving Dolberg? You know, I started out of school in Boston Consulting Group working inside of, of big companies and trying to make change from the inside. And what I found was you can make a lot of change as long as you're increasing the bottom line, which we did successfully, uh, but wasn't the thing that really inspired me. And that drove me on to try out something more focused on working for social impact, environmental impact. And so uh, at Dahlberg, spent four and a half years working with big donors like the Gates Foundation, um, Soros Foundation, and, and a bunch of nonprofits. Really enjoyed it, but came to realize two things. One, I really wanted to work within an organization because real change happened not just with a great idea, but also with implementing that idea. And two, the projects I loved most were around renewable energy and the environment. So for me, uh, the opportunity at Greenpeace was a, a great combination of those two things and something I jumped at when it became an, an opportunity. Okay, and one of the things you think about in your work, which we're going to be focusing on today, is this idea of a theory of change. Can you tell me what that is? Like, how many theories of change are there and where did they come from? <laughs> Certainly. Well, not everyone's familiar with the, the term. In, in the UK, they often call it a logic framework, or uh, here in the US, it's a theory of change the context is, uh, was initially started by some foundations um, to encourage nonprofits to better explain how their day-to-day -day activities led to short-term outcomes, medium-term um, medium outcomes, and ultimately their, their mission. And so it can be used by nonprofits, big and small, uh, advocacy, implementation, or even donors as well. In Greenpeace context, we use it at a couple different levels, and I can speak to several of them. We use it at the global level. We have uh, something called our interim global framework, a global framework that defines the priority, the six priority areas in which we work and some of the things that we're trying to achieve. We have it for the U.S. organization, and that's what I worked in a great deal as a strategy director in the U.S., defining how we make change as Greenpeace in the U.S. context, and we can talk a bit more about that. And then, of course, each campaign, it has its own strategy and tactics about how it seeks to cha make change in the world. Okay, so maybe you could just say a bit more about uh, Greenpeace's overall theory of change and, and whether that's changed at all over time, over the years. Yeah, certainly. Well, you know, Greenpeace was founded in 1971 by Quakers uh, who were opposing the, the uh, nuclear testing. And they set out from Vancouver in a boat, barely made it, didn't stop the testing, but came back to big popular acclaim on shore 
and a spurred uh, movement of Greenpeace organizations all over the world to start up with the same sort of spirit of bearing witness to these what, these atrocities, trying to stop them. And that's really where it started. Uh, people putting themselves out there on the lo- their, their lives in the line to, to say what was right. Greenpeace's work evolved much like it did with the environmental movement. Those small separate uh, organizations grew into a larger federation that we are today, 27 different uh, Greenpeace organizations. And a lot of our work in the U.S. Uh, aligned with the broader environmental movement. When the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act passed, uh, we were part of that mix. More recently, the, the, as the, that path to change has become more difficult, some organizations have focused on fight, fighting it out in the courts. Some, people, some folks have uh, continued to push on Congress. What we found uh, most effective for us, and this is how we see our U.S. theory of change, is that we use the things that we're best at, iconic fights, mobilizing people, telling powerful stories, undermining and exposing those that seek to to not tell the truth about what's happening in the world. We use those strengths to influence companies directly and then work with those same companies to achieve change in in policy, uh, either in the U.S. or globally. And that broader organizational theory of change is one you'll see across a lot of our campaigns, forests, oceans, and even some of our climate and energy work. So following on from that, one of the things that springs to many people's minds when they hear the word Greenpeace is its confrontational style of campaigning, um, and particularly the tactics that are often referred to as nonviolent direct action. To what extent do you think that those provocative tactics follow directly from your theory of change? Could you, could you imagine a Greenpeace that leaves those tactics behind? They're very much, uh, you know, as I said, bearing witness and, and that peaceful a confrontation is very much at the core of, of what we do. It's what people hear about and maybe think about first when you think of Greenpeace, but it is part of that broader theory of change we are talking about. Let's take the example of, say, the, the Indonesian paradise forest. A lot of people have heard about our work in the Amazon with allies led to the passing of the forest code there, which is now under threat, but for many years has helped significantly slow deforestation in the Amazon. Well, there's three big tropical forests in the world. One of them's in the Amazon. The second is Indonesian Paradise Forest, which we'll talk about a bit more. And then finally, the Congo River Basin in Africa, where we're working as well. In that context, who are the big companies? Well, there's people that are doing pulp and paper companies, uh, Asian pulp and paper being a big one. There's companies like Sinar Mosque uh, converting the, the forest and peatlands into for the use in palm oil. We started by just doing what you should in a good campaign. We asked them to stop. They said no. So we looked at who else we could change in that context, and we uh, asked the government. They, too, in that uh, corrupt environment, are, are not, you know, we're not willing to work with us. So we looked at where else can we create this change that we want to. We did research. We did a scientific study to trace where those wood products and palm oil was going. We released reports. We did the global supply chain research and identified very big branded companies in Europe and the U.S., those were the ones that were driving, creating the demand for that deforestation. Folks like Mattel and the toy companies, Nestle and other producers of those food products like KFC. So we went to them too and asked them to change. They didn't. And only after that long change of research and conversation study, that's when we start going to those more public tactics people are familiar with. We 
push on their social media sites, we hit them through the mass media, and yes, we do um, conf confront them directly through direct communication, big banners, big events, um, where, they, where the staff, the board, the management, the, the customers can all hear what we're saying and, and hopefully respond, and time and time again, they have. So it's something like a tactic of last resort when all the, the backroom stuff has failed. Exactly. It's always a, it's a, it's a point of escalation that follows much more. We actually uh, ha had a, a big, in the forest area, a big amount of work that we did over a long period of time, even planning some of these fun ideas. But when we went into the room to talk to uh, the world's largest uh, wholesaler of, of palm oil, Wilmar, they agreed without all those kind of tactics or uh, even being necessary. And that's even better. We can get to those big games. With Walmart, not uh, not great in everything. Just just the conversation behind closed doors led them to accede uh, to our demands around uh, what they're serving on their shelves in terms of tuna having a big uh, impact on the the seafood work globally as well. So yes, last resort certainly public certainly what get no gets noticed in the newspaper, but only a, a facet of the overall work. Right, and just I guess following on from that again, do you think? Over the years, as you've built up this reputation associated with the Greenpeace name of, of being prepared to go all the way and go into those more confrontational tactics, um, do you think that that even that when you're negotiating with these companies, um, they're kind of aware that you might go that distance and that might encourage them to be more accommodating earlier on before you even have to do it? Certainly. It's, it's nice working at Greenpeace. We have a strong brand um, for that reason. We're independent, which means we never take corporate money. We never take government money. And, and, that, and we are funded completely by individual members, including those uh, a huge number of monthly members giving us their donations. That allows us to do a couple things. We can play a really long campaign. We never go away. Uh, the big wins we've just seen in Indonesia, we were at that for 10 to 12 years, and we have, we, it allows us to have a huge ambition in what we have to go after. And also, I think people know that when we say we're coming after them, they're serious, we're serious, and um, are willing to escalate to a point where uh, they're more likely to want to see to our demand. So yes, you're exactly right. That, that reputation can help in terms of getting what we want even earlier. Right. And then do you think there's an opposite to a theory of change? Do you think some people or organizations have theories of stasis, for example, <laughs> or like how to keep things the way they are? What, what do you think they might look like? That's a fun question. You know, I think that in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. No, in the sense that I think the world is always changing. It's a dynamic place. And, and anyone who, even, even stasis, even keeping things the, sta the same, requires active, focused uh, focused effort. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of companies, Exxon comes to mind, that certainly are doing that in a big way, investing millions, if not tens of millions or hundreds of millions in trying to keep us attached to fossil fuels that need to be phased out. Uh, recent studies said we need to keep two-thirds of fossil fuels in the, uh, in the ground to, uh, to stop runaway climate change. And there's a lot of money and, and, and organizational and management interest in those companies to not have that stay with where we are, even though the world needs to change. Okay, I want to think now about how these theories of change are translated into practice. And you, you've mentioned some of these ways a bit, but I want to take one of the major environmental issues facing us today, climate change. 
In 2009, the United States witnessed a great deal of a political activity around climate change, and one of the major focal points of that activity was a piece of proposed legislation that became known as the Waxman-Markey Bill. This bill aimed to cut carbon emissions through establishing an emissions trading scheme. And although the bill was approved by the House of Representatives, it was defeated in the Senate, and today the United States still does not have a comprehensive plan to reduce the harmful emissions that are responsible for climate change. So following the defeat of this Waxman-Markey bill, there was quite a bit of soul-searching among the climate campaigning community, trying to figure out what went wrong. Um, How far do you attribute this defeat to a problem of an ineffective or unrealistic theory of change, or was it more a matter of incorrectly realising that theory in practice? A bit of both. I think uh, certainly uh, Greenpeace and the broader environmental uh, movement in the U.S. has thought a lot about this, done a lot of soul-searching. I think similarly thought a lot about the outcomes of the unsuccess, the lack of success in Copenhagen uh, as well. For me, I think that uh, as I look at it now a few years beyond, any progressive movement, environmental, immigration, uh, uh, gay rights, whatever it might be, trying to advance an agenda through Congress is a very difficult uphill battle. And so any theory of change that requires this step, uh, given the Republican uh, opposition to to really passing almost anything in the House, uh, I think that is an aired, uh, or at least a theory of change that needs to be revised. And I think for Greenpeace, that's really inspired us to go further in in the direction that where we are seeing more traction. Uh, we're not. We don't have. We have. Some, we're based in Washington D.C. with some of our staff, but that's not the key focus of our time or our effort. We're really focusing on the real power players in and influencers in the U.S. around energy and climate, and focusing there. So, for example, the some of the biggest demand for new electricity in the U.S. is coming from IT companies and data centers. I think it, that stat is something like if data centers around the world were a country, they'd be the fifth largest user of electricity. I'm not sure that's exactly right, but something in that order of magnitude. And what's really exciting and unique about data centers is they can move. So utilities, uh, basically government-sanctioned monopolies in most places, are com- now competing for these customers in an otherwise flat electricity market. So trying to what we have focused on in, in our work at, with actually great success is pressuring companies like Apple and Microsoft, Facebook and Google to commit to making their data centers green. Many of them have, Facebook, Google, uh, among the most, and Apple, among the ones that are particularly notable. And now that those folks are on our side, Greenpeace, we have a motto, no permanent friends, no permanent enemies. So we pressured them one day, now we're working with them to put pressure on the utilities to change and on regulators to do the same. I think the path to success in the U.S. is is that one of getting the the big uh, players to help accelerate the 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 change to renewable energy, um, both at the company level and at the utility level. At the same time, there's some other things that need to happen, of course. So one is accelerating that. Two is got to keep things in the ground, uh, particularly around fracking and uh, the coal exports. We're working a lot in the Northwest on trying to end the place where the government's giving away public coal at something like a dollar a ton, basically free. And that's now, uh, we're trying to stop that export to uh, places like China and, and overseas. And then third, it's a, it's a mental shift. This is a cultural change. We think a lot of it like tobacco. There's these uh, ads that we were recently looking at from the 1950s where 
Uh, they were having you know, pictures of babies and mothers smoking as this great healthy thing. And now no one would think of smoking in that regard, much less uh, take money if you're a politician from smoking companies without giving it some second thoughts. That's the path for fossil fuels in America, I believe, and that's what we need to, to help people realize. The cutting edge is, re is renewable. The future is that direction, and it's just stepping in that way. And hopefully Congress and the government will follow uh, once that trend and momentum is created. So I like this idea of, of no permanent friends and no permanent enemies. And given what you said about Exxon earlier, uh, can you imagine the situation in the future where, where you become friends with Exxon? Uh, yeah, I think that the, I, I can't imagine us being close friends, but I think we could, we are always open to working with people. There was a moment uh, where the head of Exxon actually proposed a carbon tariff. They saw it as in the future. They thought it was necessary, and they came out in in favor of that. Now, unfortunately, the I think it was the Chamber of Commerce or some of the other conservative uh, folks stopped them from doing that and held that up. But in that moment, I think those kind of unusual, surprising partnerships could could at the certain moment uh, get us to our end. At Greenpeace, we're really focused on achieving what we want to achieve uh, in a way that's consistent with our values. That said, Exxon particularly is a tough one. We've had a long history there, and uh, I don't see that happening tomorrow. But uh, as I said with the motto, the door is certainly open if that's something they're interested in talking about. Okay, and just to wrap up this discussion, I wonder if you could tell me who inspires you? Who would you hold up as the most successful change maker in history? This most, oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> I think it's a combination. Uh, it's hard to pick one pe one person or, or one uh, movement. I mean, certainly Nelson Mandela is is a stunning figure for history in that he, in a moment where the, the odds were so difficult, the personal sacrifice was so large, that he stayed peaceful in pushing for a more equitable, uh, better South Africa. And, and that's a model for many folks. I see a lot of the same parallels in in the civil rights movement in the U.S., the bus boycotts, and of course uh, aspects of of Gandhi's work in in, in uh, India, you know, all those that spirit of of really putting into having individual activists, whether they're young or retired, whether they're uh, of you know of any uh, background or or upbringing, that if they're willing to believe strongly enough, commit to be peaceful, and really stand up to the powers that be and advocate for, for the change they want to see, I think that's really the most impressive. But I don't think, I also, I'm, I think at times, as impressed by folks that maybe aren't as famous, just the folks in their daily lives that are making those sacrifices to advance us in the directions that I think our country needs to move. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. Matt, thank you again for sharing your thoughts with us today. Glad to be here. And as always, uh, please follow up with any questions. Uh, we're at greenpeace.org. And uh, my name is Matt Daggett. Thank you. Take care.